Father, we sang uh, that song that just from hymn and cross to easy words to sing and simple truth to grasp in our minds that that is the battle of sanctification and spiritual growth is to cease from sin and to cease from self in terms of our own self-rule and self-will to live, O Christ, as you did in perfect submission to the will of the Father as an example to us. Perfect submission out of perfect trust and perfect love. And while your suffering was great, at the same time, you had a joy that was deep. So that you could say to the disciples, from the night that you would be betrayed, my joy I give to you, not as the world gives to you, for in the world there are troubles, but my joy I give to you. And it's a joy that cannot be taken away. It's a joy that's directly connected to obedience and to faith. So help us to grasp that in our own personal walks and to live in that obedience to your confessed view. And now as we open your word together, Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Ultimately, we commit our time to you, the praise and the honor of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Okay, open up your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, we're coming into a new section in this epistle. Peter is changing directions for us here and addressing a specific group among this body here. Remember that he has just given some concluding remarks that have on the theme that has encompassed or driven him through most of the epistle, and that is the nature of suffering, the nature of suffering for the glory of God and because of a commitment to Christ and for the name of Christ. And as we come into this new section, we are immediately confronted here with a group that he identifies as the elders, as the elders. We here in Newtown Bible Church have long prayed for elders in the history of the church. It was in its early years, or for many of its early years, a congregation-led church. In other words, there was no theology that supported multiple elders uh, among the body. That changed, I don't know, I'm guessing maybe 20-something years ago before I came here, and there was teaching on the subject from Scripture and Newtown uh, Bible Church, it may have been Bible Baptist Church at that time, I could be corrected on that, uh, made the decision to say it is consistent with Scripture to have elders as the recognized leadership of the church. And so there was a decision to move that way. The statement of faith was changing, changed, the bylaws were changed, and so forth. And there were some elders that were there, appointed. After that, there were some that left. The church uh, reduced in number. There was a, a bit of a shakeup for a while. And the church was, for years, had one elder. And that was the case when, by God's providence, I was first introduced to Newtown Bible Church. So there was one elder, and I came. I would have been the second elder, and at this point, then the teaching elder as well. And so we were here for about a year, and there were two, and then there was one. This elder moved on, uh, and so there was me alone, and we prayed for other elders to come in. And the Lord provided that, uh, and there were for two years, then two of us in a unique kind of situation, uh, that eventually, because of financial reasons primarily, uh, it ended, and this uh, other elder ended up moving to another church, and then again there was one. 
And in the course of history over all of that time, uh, some may wonder, and I've been asked this question before, is why is there only one elder at the church? That is certainly not our theology, it's not our understanding of scripture, and it most significantly is not our desire, and most especially is not my desire to be the only elder here, and yet it is by the providence of God that he has ordained in this time. So we have had close calls of elders who would come. We had one who was seemingly a gift from God years ago, but there were some distinct differences in theology that did not allow him to fulfill that ministry here that related to the sovereignty of God and salvation and some other points. A wonderful brother, but it did preclude the ability to serve here as an elder in which at that position there needs to be doctrinal unity uh, and connection. We've had other people who've served as elders come and be a part of the church for years at a time, but were for various reasons, uh, never aspired to the office of elder here to fulfill that ministry. And so we have, at different times, discussed uh, eldership with people among the congregation, and yet in those discussions realized that that was not the call of God uh, on their life uh, at this time. So it certainly is not for lack of effort, it's not for lack of prayer, and it's not for lack of desire that Newtown Bible Church is stuck with one elder. And as a result of that, I can but look about uh, the church and only see my weaknesses. People are encouraging to say their uh, strengths, and we're thankful that some can see that. But at the end of the day, God's design for the church is to have elders, is to have multiple elders. And so... Even as we introduce this and we look uh, at that office this morning, by because of Paul's striking introduction of that office to us on the pages of 1 Peter, I'm also exhorting and asking that we as a church continue to pray that God would raise up elders either among us or bring them in to us. It is God's design for the church. And again, as I said, we are confronted with that directly as we come into this new section, this concluding section in the epistle of 1 Peter. Let me read our, this section to you, so verses 1 through 4, and then we'll swing back up to verse 1 and look at this issue of eldership more closely. He says in verse chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore... I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor as yet lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, Peter here is, of course, directly addressing the elders of the church. And though it's somewhat hidden for us in translation, I just want to bring this out because in the Greek language, sometimes words can change around and the author will do that for emphasis. We can't really do that in English. There's some kind of ways we can finagle that, but not really. Uh, but in the Greek language, you can do that. So if you were reading this through, as Peter had originally written it, you would have this ending statement of doing what is right or doing good. And you have simply the word presbyteros, the word that we translate as elders, 
right there at the beginning of the sentence. It's striking. It grabs your attention as you're reading it. It stands out to you. And Peter meant to do that. He wants to emphasize in this powerful address this group of men who are entrusted with the leadership and the shepherding of these people, namely these people who are suffering. So as he's spoken to the church at large as an apostle, he now is speaking to the elders specifically as the leaders and the shepherd of that church to address them as they give spiritual care to the congregation who is experiencing an increasing suffering because of the testimony of the word of Jesus Christ. Now there's much to say here, but the first question we ask when, when so confronted with this word is who are these elders and why does he single them out? Why does he so distinctly single them out from the rest of the congregation? And it is that question then that we'll spend the remainder of our time answering this morning and then next week we'll get into the details of the passage itself. But what is an elder? What is an elder? What is this office? Who is he specifically addressing? And what relationship did they have to the church? What responsibility did they have to the church? Why is this group entrusted with that and not other leaders among the church? Why is this group simply called the elders? Why is that? Well, let's begin by going backwards, namely to the Old Testament. And try to fill out a little bit of what the idea of an elder is. Now, I'll tell you up front, there is not a direct correlation between the elders in the Old Testament and a New Testament elder. We're going to get to that point. But this does serve as a background of the term as you read your Bible. And so very, very briefly, I want to address this in, in, a, in the broadest possible way. Uh, just to give us an idea of the development of that idea of within the pages of scripture. So elders in the Old Testament. If you were to read your Bible, you're going to come across a word that's translated from the Hebrew, of course, in the Old Testament, that is translated as elder or elders. And that is, of course, a good translation. That term in the Hebrew, I won't try to pronounce it uh, for you because it would mess up. And if any of you as a Hebrew scholar, you'll publicly rebuke me probably. But in a bad uh, accent, it would be a word zaken, zaken, but again, they would say it better. But this word is used primarily to refer to someone who is old in age. So, for example, in Genesis 18, 11, Abraham and Sarah were old. It's that root term. They were old. Or one who was the head of a household. Sometimes it was referred to Abraham's servant in Genesis 24, where that term was used to refer to him as he was the head of Abraham's household also in pharaoh's house so within the gentile world as well this term was used to speak of those who were leaders or heads within the household there were heads in the household of pharaoh in egypt and from the earliest times within israel as a nation particularly elders were influential heads of families or heads of clans that yielded uh, much sway among uh, the people of god just give you an example of this uh, after appearing to Moses in the burning bush we might read over this if this wasn't our topic of discussion but God sent Moses and he said this in Exodus three sixteen. 
Gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Just there, an indication of their social and political influence among the people of God. Moses was not sent to the nation as a whole, but first to the elders because of their unique position among the people. Moreover, when they were to go, when Moses was to go before Pharaoh, he was to take with him the elders. Just a couple of verses later, God says to him, You with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, Basically, let my people go, and so forth. So these elders were then to attend the ministry and the mission of Moses in representing the nation of Israel to the leader of the nation of Egypt, Pharaoh. A building on this as the Jews were delivered out and redeemed out of Egypt and wandered around in the wilderness. Uh, the idea of being this kind of leader, this elder, received a divine commission and later would develop more into an institutional office. Now, again, not a parallel, but within Judaism. The beginnings of this, as I mentioned, can be traced to the wilderness wanderings. After complaining, Moses complained about the unbearable burden of leading the people by himself it was too much for one man then we read this in numbers 11 verses 16 through 17 gather for me 70 men from the elders of israel whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you this is of course god speaking and then i will come down and speak with you there and i will take of the spirit who is upon you and will put him upon them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you will not bear it all alone. God says, I am by my spirit going to equip these men who are from the elders of Israel and they are going to bear the burden of leading these people with you because it's too much for you to do alone. It's possible that it's not necessarily uh, so, matter of fact, it, it may be unlikely, but it is possible that these are the same men chosen in Exodus 18. If you'll remember, there were leaders, that term isn't used there, uh, after the counsel of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, that it was too much to judge the people. And so he gave them counsel to take those who were competent to do that from among the nation, and then they will help you in this uh, effort of adjudicating the issues that come before you as the leader of Israel. It's not likely that that is the same group. It's possible, and it's, or it's possible that they were taken from that group. But in either case, the point was to show the significance of elders within the nation of Israel and in the shared leadership with Moses of the people of God and as well of God's special calling and enabling of them for this task. During the exile and return, the role and the authority of these elders uh, increased and actually, before then, uh, just through that uh, divine commission at Sinai, the elders, the, their role increased. And just an example, I didn't want to skip over this. When King David, and King Saul for that matter, but King David was to be made king, uh, they were sent first to the elders who were the ones who were to be significant in acknowledging David as the king of Israel. Let me give you just one example of that in second samuel you don't have to turn there i'm just going to read it for you in second samuel chapter 5 verse 13 it says meanwhile 
or excuse me, in verse uh, 3, chapter 5, verse 3, it says, So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron, and they anointed David king there over Israel. So that's, again, just simply to show the significant role that they played. Now back to the exile. During the exile and during their return from the exile, the role of the elder in the history of Israel became even more significant. They had a more uh, primary role within the role in, within the functioning of the state of Israel as a state and in forming a council that was designed to rule the nation. Now, that was the early seeds of what would become what we're more familiar with, which is known as the Sanhedrin or the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was essentially a ruling body within the nation of Israel that was made up of 70 people. Initially, going back the roots of it was 70 elders. And again, their primary role, role was uh, political and with legal in the sense of judging the nation of Israel, taking cases and giving a decision that had an authoritative element to it. Although there was some overall weakening of their power during the Roman rule, and the composition of the Sanhedrin was changed, it was no longer just made of elders, so by the time we come into the New Testament, there's uh, elders who actually are uh, like the lay leaders there and were lower, and you had the chief priest there who was over it all, and then the scribes uh, that, and regular priests that were a part of it. And so it had diminished somewhat, but still they played a significant role in the political and the religious life of Jerusalem. The rabbis, in fact, trace the number 70 and the role of the San, those in the Sanhedrin to Numbers 11 and God establishing uh, those who ruled with Moses. So that's where we come into, in, uh, as we come up close to the New Testament and the testimony of elders in the Gospels. There were as well, I would make note, too, and this is what we find um, uh, often in the Gospels as well, is that outside of the Sanhedrin, or excuse me, in the intertestinal period, is there were also these local Jewish communities outside of Jerusalem that had councils of seven elders, and they were in charge of just running for tasks of the synagogue uh, and influenced parts of religious life. Now with that, then we come into the Gospels. In the Gospels, the elders are seen again primarily maintaining a significant role in the Sanhedrin and great influence in the religious thinking of the people. And so Jesus said, or it was said to Jesus, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? We see there a significant influence still that they had in the mind of the people. But primarily when we are uh, faced with the elders within the Gospels, they are singled out for their role in the passion of Christ. So we see the elders mentioned from the lips of Christ, particularly as those who will hand him over, those who will be responsible for putting him to death, those who will be responsible for uh, rejecting him, for getting rid of him, essentially, and for his murder. So both in the passion predictions and in the narratives of the passion, we, passion, we see the elders may play a significant role there. Let me just give you a few examples. We won't belabor this, but Matthew 26, 3, it says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. In verse 47, 
when he was in the garden, it says, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas and one of, one of the twelve came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. And that gives you enough. That's the way that we're primarily introduced to them. And a few times opposing him as he entered into Jerusalem during this final week of his life. At the same way, after the crucifixion and after the resurrection and after the coming of the Holy Spirit, we're confronted with Jewish elders, again, primarily in their opposition to the gospel. Again, let me just read a couple of verses. In Acts chapter 5, responding to the preaching of Peter and John, it says that on the next day there are rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and they were gathered together to put them on trial and ultimately to persecute and to try to silence the testimony of the gospel through these apostles. And so those are primary Jewish elders. There's a lot of other passages we could look at, but that's consistently the pattern that we see within the New Testament. But then we come to elders as a new covenant office, as an office of the church, as a unique role and relationship of individuals with the church of Jesus Christ. So when we come into the New Testament, we have this term elder. You might be familiar with it again. It's presbyteros. It's one of the primary sermons that we have. Presbyteros. In some cases, it retains its Old Testament sense of someone older. So for example, in 1 Timothy 5.1, he says, do not sharply rebuke an older man. Presbyteros is the term that he uses there. In chapter 5, 2, he uses a feminine form, and he said, talks about older women. In Hebrews eleven two, he talks about men of old. Those are all uses of that term. So it can be used just in a general sense. However, the primary use of the term in the New Covenant is for the office of elder within the church. And here we start to get down a little bit in understanding this. The first use of the term as an office in the New Testament actually comes in Acts chapter 11, verse 30. And in reference to a collection being taken for uh, brethren, Jewish brethren in Judea, he says this, uh, the collection had been taken for brethren living in Judea, and this they did, speaking of Paul and Barnabas, sending it, that is the money taken for them, in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. To the elders. They're referring not merely to old influential people, but those who were entrusted with this office. It was to the elders of the church that Barnabas and Saul or Paul were sent. Interestingly, it appears then just out of nowhere, the office. There's no direct explanation given to how this office came about. There's no direct explanation given to how they decided who these elders were. At that point, you simply are immediately in reading through the New Testament confronted with this office, this group of men who are called elders who have the significant role in the life of the church. However, as I again, it's not a continuation of the Old Testament elder. There is that distinction even made early on, as I already mentioned. The elders of the Jews were there persecuting the church, but then you had the elders of the church who were being persecuted for the name of Christ, for the testimony of the gospel. And I'm just going to mention this briefly. There's four, four suggestions are usually proposed for how then the New, Test- the New Covenant office came about. One is to say that it's a correlation with the Old Testament elder. 
However, again, that was directly a, a role as head of the family. It wasn't specifically connected to protecting doctrine, teaching. It was more of a political role in the life of his year. So there's not, there are some overlap, but there's a lot of differences. Some say then the New Testament elder just came out of the culture. The Jewish culture shaped the thinking of the early apostles. However, again, there's no parallel between elders within Jewish culture and the New Testament office. Uh, that would make that just out of a, a sort of a cultural uh, progression. Some say they came uh, patterned after the Sanhedrin, but that doesn't work because the Sanhedrin was primarily a judicial body. It wasn't a primarily religious body in terms of teaching and shepherding and looking after the spiritual care of the people. And some say then it came after the elders uh, that were in the synagogues that were scattered out through the land, the Council of Seven and others. And although there are some parallels there and there is some overlap, the differences make any direct connection unlikely. For example, one noted this, uh, pointing out the distinction, that those elders, speaking of in the synagogues, had no responsibility for the worship of the synagogues, nor did they uh, of the custody of right doctrine or the exposition of scripture. Synagogue elders provide at best a shadowy model for the Christian and his term presbyter or elders. So then, Elder in the New Testament is something distinct to the church. It's distinct to the church. While there is some general overlap, it comes on the scene as an office uniquely and distinctly suited for the leadership of the church. So what then is the origin of the office? First, in answering that, the new covenant office of eldership originates through the apostolic ministry of the apostles who were entrusted with establishing new covenant doctrine. Jesus explicitly stated to the disciples while in the upper room in John 14, 26 and 16, 13, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Later he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Specifically, the spirit will take of everything that is belongs to Jesus and everything that Jesus has, he says, is of the Father and he will take from them and reveal to you all the truth that is necessary for to establish the doctrine of the new covenant church. Now, the primary element of that promise there is to the theological and doctrinal truth about Jesus, as Paul acknowledges in Ephesians 2.20, for example, that was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. But the Spirit's ministry also includes leading and gifting the church with spiritual gifts that are for the building up of the body of Christ. So in Ephesians 4.11, Jesus or Paul even equates this directly to the ministry of the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. He says this, that he gave some as a gift, so speaking after his ascension, his return to the right hand of the Father, he says that he gave some gifts to his church. What were those gifts? This is, this is what they are. Some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. That was then a specific gift of the exalted Christ to his church. And it was directed by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we'll come back, I'll mention this later, but he says in Acts 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. You are what you are, and you have the role that you have because the Holy Spirit has 
in union with the risen Christ, called you, gifted you, appointed you, and designed for you to bear the role of elder or overseer. So the origin of the new covenant office of elder is found in the spirit-enabled apostolic ministry of the early apostles. It was developed by the Spirit's leading through their ministry of teaching and guiding the nurture of the church. Second item, the office of elder probably originated in uh, its uh, form that it would take uh, in Acts chapter 6. And you could just glance at that, but I'm going to go quickly here. Acts chapter 6, this is, of course, in the early days of the church. And as the church was growing here, the church is primarily at this point still made up of Jewish converts. And a problem arose among this group. And the problem was is that even though they were Jews, there were two distinct groups that didn't get along super great all the time within Jews. And there were those who were Jews from Jerusalem and Judea, they spoke Hebrew, they were there in the land, the worship of Jerusalem, they were considered in their own minds uh, more pure, more faithful, more committed Jews. And then you had other Jews who were known as Hellenized Jews. In other words, these are Jews that had through, it's called the dysphoria, those who were scattered throughout the lands in different parts of the world and who had really taken on a lot of Jewish culture. Some of them only spoke uh, Greek, they weren't very good in their Hebrew. Uh, they had elements of Jewish, or excuse me, Greek culture that they had and taken on to themselves. And so they were seen by one sect of the Jews as really compromising. And so these two groups didn't get along super well. And now they had, from these two groups, believed in Christ. Some had believed in Christ, but still uh, old problems arose. And there was a complaint, he says in verse 1 of chapter 6, on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. That's the two groups. Because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the 12, that at this point then would be 11 of the original disciples and the Matthias who was chosen uh, to replace Judas. So the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we, verse 4, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so here then is a striking division of labors between at this, these who were the apostles and who would later become the beginnings of the ministry of the diaconate as well, which is another context altogether but here we have or another message altogether but here we have these apostles who are dividing their labor based on the ministry that they were called to which is here described as a ministry of prayer and a ministry of the word this was their unique responsibility and their unique calling it was apostolic duty to teach scripture to lay a doctrinal foundation for the church both in establishing the gospel and defending the gospel against error that was coming in. Theirs was to shepherd and to give leadership in prayer for the church and to execute the ministry of the word. Now, I mention that for this reason. The apostles, of course, held a unique place in the early church. These were the men who were recognized as God's distinct representatives or Christ's distinct representatives who were given leadership 
and to establish doctrine. That was understood clearly. However, the apostles and the ministry of the apostles also finds parallels in the office of elder. So that's why Peter could say in our passage, he could refer to himself as your fellow elder. We'll talk more about that next week. Your fellow elder didn't diminish his role as an apostle, but it did provide a connection point and a unity in his role as an elder as well. And moreover, you see the apostles and the elders connected at specific points in the history of the church. Again, I'm just going to mention this briefly, but in Acts chapter 15, for example, a significant chapter in the life of the church that was establishing the gospel and how the gospel was to be lived out among Jewish communities. And so it was confronting error, particularly error of the Judaizers, those who were from among the Jews who had believed in Christ as Messiah and said, in order to express your faith, you have to also be circumcised as in, in obedience to God. And so this was a big issue that rose up and it was causing a lot of turmoil among the people of God. And so the Council of Jerusalem was called together to resolve uh, this issue. But notice who is a part of it in verse 2. If you turn there, when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. Same again in verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. Again in verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Again in verse 23, they sent letter by them and acknowledged in this letter that it was the apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, and so forth. In verse 4 of chapter 16, again, now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. What is the point of noting all of that? It's simply to say this. There was a distinction, first of all, between who was an apostle and who was an elder. So those were not conflated, those two offices. And yet, there is also a connection between the leadership of the church that the apostles uniquely had as those called by God and the elders who were uniquely commissioned by the apostles to be leaders in the church. And so again, then you see this as the as the gospel spread. It said in Acts 14.23 that one of the ministries and responsibilities of the apostles, Acts 4.23, was to appoint elders in all of the churches. To appoint elders. These, a church was established and one of the first burdens of the apostles then was to say, you are the elders, to, to uh, identify and to establish elders within that church. You see this again reflected in Titus 1.5 in Paul's instruction to Titus. He says, for this reason, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. A church was established and the elders were to be established with it as an essential part of the leadership and the shepherding of the people of God in that location. Secondly, then, what question we ask this. What role, then, does the elder have among the church? What role does the elder have among the church? Well, there are three primary roles. Three primary roles of the New Testament elder. And that, they are these. Teaching, leading, and shepherding. Teaching, leading, leading 
and shepherding. Those are the three primary roles of the elder. It is how they relate and function and use their giftedness within the people of God. Just as a note, in case some of you are wondering, these roles are reflected, before we look at the role itself, in the various terms used to describe the office of eldership. Now, in the history of the church, as we're all very well familiar with, there eventually developed a distinction between an elder and a bishop. And a bishop had an exalted role. That's ultimately even what led to uh, the pope. But that developed later. That certainly was not the idea of the New Testament, or even in the first years right after the New Testament. There were other factors that led to that historically. But in the New Testament, we don't see such a distinction between the different terms used to describe this office. Now, I'm going to give you the actual term just because you'll hear it. It's not the, you don't want to, it's not to throw out Greek words all the time, but, but these are words that you're familiar with, and so we want to just connect them with this. Uh, episkopos, which is often translated as overseer, uh, or where some would get bishop uh, from. Uh, the other word I already mentioned is presbyteros. That has to do with leading, teaching. And then the, uh, there's a word called poimen, and that is actually the word that's behind, that's translated pastors as in Ephesians 4.11. So when he said he gave some as pastors and teachers, uh, that term pastors is this word poimen. So these are different terms. They're not different offices. They're all terms referring to the same office. That's a big discussion. But let me just tell you this, where do we get that from? It is because the New Testament itself uses them that way. The New Testament does not make that distinction. All of those terms are used to refer to the same office. Let me again just give you some examples. You can just listen. Acts 20, 17. From Miletus, he, being Paul, sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders, that is the presbyteros of the church. In verse 28, speaking to this same group, he says... We read it earlier, be on guard yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episcopos, of the church of God. Same group, different terms, same office. The same can be found in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. I won't turn there, but you can look that up on your own. So what then was the ministry? What is an elder to be in the church? What is his role? What is his primary responsibility Within the church of God. First of all, it is teaching. It is teaching. One of the primary responsibilities of an elder is to teach scripture. It is to teach scripture. You may remember in the list of qualifications for an overseer or an elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the one distinction that stands out of the moral qualification, or this isn't a moral qualification, but those are the same between an elder and a deacon, but the one function giftedness that stands out is in verse 2, the end of verse 2, able to teach. He must be able to teach the elders. That is one of his primary roles is to teach. Now this does not mean that every elder has the same kind of teaching ministry or giftedness, not all elders are necessarily preachers, not all elders necessarily fill the same role. That's not what he means by ability to teach. When he says an elder must be able to teach, he simply means this. An elder must know scripture and be able to effectively communicate it to someone else. That's it. That's it. They must know scripture and be able to effectively communicate it to someone else. That's what he means by ability to teach. And that can be wide-ranging uh, in that ability and the kind of ministry that God calls an elder 
two. This has two primary ends, this ability to teach, that are identified. One, he must be able to teach scripture, to communicate it in such a way that he can equip the saints for the work of service. Ephesians 4.11. Remember, this is, along with evangelists, apostles, and prophets, a gift of the risen Christ to his church. And just think about that for a minute. It is not just a happenstance kind of thing. It's not something that's just developed. The risen Lord Jesus Christ to establish the ministry of his church, its health and its growth from heaven in the right hand of the Father, gave gifts to his church, which included apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Pastor, teacher, prophet. And so he says, then, part of their ministry, or included in that ministry of teaching, is to equip the saints for the work of service. The teaching ministry of the elders should be to the effect that believers are equipped with an understanding of Scripture so as to be able to grow spiritually and serve effectively. That's the idea. They should be growing the people under the care of the elders in a knowledge of the Word that enables them to grow as a Christian, to function as a Christian, to serve as a Christian, even eventually to defend the gospel, but to live it effectively in their lives. Again, this can take place in a variety of ways among the elders. Some among the elders are going to be particularly gifted at preaching and teaching. Some are going to be particularly gifted at teaching. Some may be particularly gifted at counseling is their ministry. Some may be particularly gifted in the ability to wisely apply scripture in a way that it leads the church well. So the point I'm making here is just that there's not a cookie-cutter ministry or role or way that ability to teach works itself out. There's a variety of ways for the health of the church that God enables elders in the office to apply their giftedness to the building up of the body of Christ. Secondly, related to the gift of teaching, they must be able to teach in a way that they effectively can equip the saints for the work of service. Secondly, they must be able to teach Scripture and defend Scripture against error. They must be able then to defend sound doctrine. To defend sound doctrine. That is a requirement of an elder. In verse 9 of Titus, we read this. That an elder must be one who is holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. So that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So while there might be various levels of the knowledge of the word, there must be a base level of knowledge of scripture that can fulfill those two roles at some degree, to some degree. But they must be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to defend against error, to refute those who contradict. Now again, this does not mean every elder is a skilled apologist. It does mean that an elder must understand scripture and have the ability to recognize error and to confront error when it arises. And when it threatens the health of the church. It's part of the reason that Christ has placed them there. To protect the people of God doctrinally and theologically. And this is necessary not only for protection against error from outside of the church. In other words, those attacks from the gospel that come from outside. It is necessary that those elders among a church must have a doctrinal unity and clarity. That enables them to refute error from within the church itself, and even from among elders themselves. That's a pretty daunting statement. How 
are those who are designed and put in the office to protect against error have to protect it against themselves, essentially, but that's precisely, again, I read to you once more, out of our Acts chapter 20. He says, I know after my departure that savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Remembering night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And then he goes on. From among yourselves, from this own office, this own sacred office, error will arise. And you will need to confront it. And you will need to be ready for it. Those who true, prove themselves to be true servants of God. And you can see this as, as I mean, we'll be, we could spend the rest of the day just reading the passages from the New Testament in which this is addressed. But we have in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul said, I'm afraid that lest as the Satan deceived Eve, your mind be might be led astray from the simplicity of devotion to Christ. How is your mind going to be led astray from the simplicity of devotion to Christ? By those who are claiming to speak for Christ, but in fact they are speaking by the impulse and the power of Satan. But they're in the church claiming to speak for Christ. You say, that's pretty radical. Imagine if we actually identified for what it is, the kind of error we see like that in the church today particularly those leaders who haven't quite come to do so yet. Praise God that some do. He says this in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 11, For such men are false apostles. These are those who are coming into the church to influence the church, to teach in the church. He says they are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguising, disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. And so essentially, elders at the end of the day are the ones who are given the task of defending the church against these kinds of false teachers who come in. And you can see it in so many places. We won't turn there because of time. 1 Timothy 3, that's the instruction he gives to Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, present yourself approved to God as a workman, not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Why? Because people are coming in handling it inaccurately. They're leading people astray. They're confusing doctrine. They're being, bringing spiritual burden and turmoil to the church. They are hindering the spiritual growth of the people of God. Some they are even leading away to apostasy. And so he tells Timothy, it is your job to rightly divide the word of truth. Why do we meet on Thursday night with the men? So that the men among the church will rightly divide the word of truth. And praise God, they do, and they want to. But that is a ministry of an elder. Secondly, leading. I don't have as much more time. Let me take this one. An elder is to lead. An elder is to lead the church. Paul pictures this by giving the requirement and making the parallel of an overseer uh, his leadership in his home and his leadership within the church. So in 1 Timothy 3, again, in giving these instructions, he says, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Believe me, we've had seasons in our home where I thought, am I qualified to be an elder? Seriously. But that is where 
that is where his ministry must first be proven in the home. And it must be in his leadership within the home that he is able to demonstrate the ability to lead his family well, lead his children well. And that is then a measure of how he will be able to lead in the church of God. And so Paul himself makes a parallel there. He says in Hebrews 13, 7, most likely referring to elders, Obey your leaders and submit to them. They keep watch over your souls. And the key idea is this. The elders are entrusted with the direction and oversight of ministries within the church. This means their leadership is to be consistent with their responsibility to spiritually care for the church and nurture the spiritual growth of her members. That is leadership that is consistent with the word of God and sound doctrine in terms of the direction of the church. Thirdly, elders are, commi- are assigned the responsibility of shepherding, of shepherding. That I mentioned to you earlier is what's behind the term pastors. In Ephesians 11. This has the idea of caring and attending primarily to the spiritual needs of God's people. Uh, we won't turn there. You can mark it down. But Ezekiel 34 is a striking passage in which there the priest, the prophet, is, or God through the prophet Ezekiel, is addressing the priest of the nation. And he's saying, you essentially were assigned to shepherd and protect the people of God. But because you have neglected your ministry, they are now going astray. And I hold you responsible. And then he gives the great promise that there is going to be the great shepherd who comes, the shepherd who is the promise of King David to rule and lead his people. But he gives it there in the Old Testament priest. In the New Testament, Peter entrusts to the elders in 1 Peter 5, 2, to shepherd the church of God. And we'll look at that in that context, what he says. But that is the ministry. He says, shepherd the church of God. He uses the verb form of that same term, shepherd the church of God, pastor the church of God, model the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he identifies in 1 Peter 2.25 as the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And again, this idea is picked up in Hebrews 13.7, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they will keep, or they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, an account to the Lord himself. So for an elder particularly, In the account before God, they will stand before the risen Christ and say, how did you fulfill your ministry of protecting the sheep, of teaching the sheep, of equipping the sheep, of leading the sheep? They, of course, are sheep themselves, but in their particular role in ministry within the people of God. James 3.1 then says, don't let many of you become teachers, my brethren, which would include elders, may even be directly referring to them, because you will encounter a stricter judgment. So how are elders recognized and chosen? This I'll just mention in my way that, well, let me just say this. Elders are recognized, they're not made. Elders is a spiritual giftedness within the church. You don't just pick the nicest guy who doesn't have sin in his life and knows the Bible and say you're an elder. It's a ministry, as we read in Acts 20, that is from the Holy Spirit. It's from the Holy Spirit. Externally, objectively, then, you recognize an elder by somebody who's already functioning as an elder, who already has a connection with the people in which he's communicating scripture. He has a concern for discipleship. He has a relationship to the word of the people in such a way that he wields an effective, Christ-honoring ministry that promotes spiritual growth and the health of the church. 
you recognize that and you go, ah, I think that person might be an elder. And then you take it from there. So they are recognized, they are not made. One of the worst things that can happen within a church, even worse than having no elders, is have the wrong elders. You have people who are there for the wrong reason. Because they're wealthy, because they have a long history with the church, because they're well-connected in town, because they're the most influential in the church. All of those are a recipe for disaster. And the wreckage of those kind of decisions lays across the grounds of the church. It is first, then, someone who is recognized as having this giftedness of an elder. Secondly, it's eternal and internal and subjective. He says in 1 Timothy that an elder has a strong desire to do so. It's something that is stirred up within the man of God that he is calling to the ministry of eldership within the church. It is a desire that they have. So someone who is an elder has a basic desire to fulfill that ministry. Although I would make one caveat to that. It is also true that at times someone can be called to that ministry because they are compelled to fulfill it, even though if they could, they would rather not have to because of the responsibility. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 9 in relationship to his role as an apostle. I'm just going to mention this to you. 1 Corinthians 9, he says this. If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. In other words, God gave me a command. If I don't obey that command, woe to me. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. In other words, Paul didn't say, hey, you know, I've got this really neat idea. I think I'll be the apostle to the Gentiles and spend my whole life being beaten, shipwrecked, rejected, flogged in the synagogues, rotten, stoned, and left for dead, being alone in the pathways in danger of robbers and criminals and left for three nights in the sea and so forth. He didn't want to sign up for that, but Christ had called him to that ministry, and he was faithful to the call. That's the issue. He says, what then is my reward that when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. What is your reward is that I get to do this freely as a ministry before Christ. That's my reward. And so there is that as well. So elders then, and this is the last thing I'll say, are an expression of Christ's love for the church. They are an expression of Christ's love for the church. They are those called for the express purpose of the spiritual care protection and well-being of God's own people and they are instrumental in the spiritual growth and stability of the church and it's for that reason in the midst of direct addressing suffering of the church that Paul strikingly turns his attention to conclude the letter and says elders elders I as your fellow elder exhort you exhort you to fulfill this ministry and it is for this reason that we need to seek the Lord as this local church We need to seek the Lord together to send to us men and to raise up men who will fulfill this ministry for the good and the joy of us as the people of God. So I would implore you as well to pray that God would send to us elders, that he will raise them up or that he will send them to us. Some of us have prayed that passionately for a long time and we've had some brushes, but we still wait for God to raise up those men for this our health and our spiritual good. I argue with the Lord all the time on this. I say, Lord, this is your design, not mine. You're the head of the church. So I pray that we could pray that prayer together.
to that end, we'll look at this passage in 1 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians, 1 Peter chapter 5 more closely next week. We'll look at verses 1 through 4 and flesh that out a little bit more through the words of Peter. Let me close with some prayer. And then uh, John will come up and we'll come back. Maybe a verse, song or something. Father, thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. You, out of great love and care for your son and for those whom you called into fellowship with him, have supplied to your church everything that's necessary for a life of joy and for a life of fruitfulness and for a life of spiritual growth. Not only in elders, but in every way that you've gifted your church, which is in a variety of ways. Some give, some serve, some teach, some have gifts of management, some have gifts in a variety of ways, all of which, both small and great, are brought together by your sovereign work, Holy Spirit, to build up the church and for the health of the church. But you have among all of those also singled out the office of elder for the ministry of the word spiritual care of your people and we thank you for this we thank you for your goodness and for your wisdom and we pray to you as well as your people that you would express that goodness and that faithfulness to us consistent with your own word and with your own design here at this local church Newtown Bible Church and that you would raise men up that you would bring men who are not yet here who you've called to that ministry that we might delight and increase in our joy and the experience of your goodness and divine love in our lives. This we pray to you, the Lord of the church, in the name of the one who has redeemed us, who has called us into your eternal fellowship, who has given us every promise and hope in your word, has given us this guarantee of the Spirit. In your matchless name, our Lord Jesus, and to you, our great Father, we pray.